This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. This may shock some of you, but I wasn't the best behaved preteen in the world, and I pretty consistently got myself into trouble throughout the neighborhood, some of which my parents are aware of, and others I don't think they are yet. But I ended up chatting about this period in time with my parents recently, my parents talked to me about the tough decisions they had to make around that period. Being the oldest kid, I was the guinea pig on how to carry out discipline. They absolutely knew they had to do something. They had to discipline preteen me and rein me back in from the edge. But what should they do? If they did nothing and just left me my own, that'd be easy. It wouldn't have listened to my preteen annoyance at them, and they wouldn't have to be the bad guys. But it would also be rolling the dice the next time I got myself into big trouble, it wouldn't be life-altering. Well, what about going the other way? Full force, grab an electric cattle prod from the shed and really teach me a lesson. Well, at least in this state, that's pretty much frowned upon. And the entire neighborhood may reflect somewhat poorly on a teenage boy becoming a human multimeter. So they needed something in the middle to take away something I really loved. So they looked at the TV I had in my room for playing games. And his punishment took it away for a week. And that week? Well, to preteen me, that week was hell. No games for me. That's it, I was on the straight and narrow. My mom became so proud of how well it worked that it became her go-to form of discipline. She began taking it away, or threatening to take it away, for increasingly smaller infractions, to the point where even minor annoyances were met with vague threats about the TV. For preteen me, it was unbearable. The pressure was getting to me. I decided this situation could not go on any longer. So I ended up taking up all the money I'd saved over the years and going out door to door and offering to mow neighbors' lawns or sweep up leaves, whatever I could to gather money up. It took me a few weeks, but finally I'd gathered enough money to go down to the pawn shop and buy a secondhand television of my own. And that's it. The threat was gone. She couldn't take it away. Now it was my TV. This huge tool that my parents had just discovered was all of a sudden gone. If she'd only taken it away every now and again, only for the big stuff, it wouldn't have put such a burning passion in me to go get my own television. But because the confiscation came out so often, I knew I had to do something, and it forced me to be self-sufficient. I bring up this story because it's the same dilemma the US is facing at the moment when it comes to the implementation of sanctions on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Much like my parents, the US knows it has to do something about Russia. It knows if it does nothing, it sends a giant signal to Moscow, Beijing, Baku, Ankara, and many others that invasions are all good. Feel free to run wild across the borders. But at the same time, going to war means starting a countdown that will likely lead to nuclear annihilation. So the US goes with the middle ground. Harsh sanctions. Trying to put huge financial pressure on a country to convince it to change its behavior. And the US has been playing this card more and more often since the early 2000s, now having national sanctions against five nations and individual and industry sanctions against a further 21. But here's the problem. The more times the US uses it, the bigger the sanction club gets. The more chance that these nations go out and buy their own TVs. A TV that the US has no influence over. So how hard should the US push? Should it be enough to just hurt? Or should it be enough to cripple them once and for all, somewhere in the middle? It's a real worry that simply pushing hard against these countries will push them into the arms of China or Russia, and that long term isn't great for the US. 
Sanctions are a complicated balancing act because once you pull the trigger on sanctions, that's it. You can't pull it again. You can't take my TV away twice in the same week. So this week, we take a look at US sanctions, how effective they actually are, and would the US call their sanctions efforts in North Korea, Cuba, Iran, Venezuela, or Syria a rousing success? Or are sanctions about punishing some to deter others? Well, to answer this fairly complicated question, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. War in the Spreadsheets Well, because it's the serious thing that we can do that's short of war, when you reach the point where uh, diplomatic intervention and, and diplomacy isn't doing the job and, and you want to do something uh, that is meaningful, but you don't want to send troops or launch a, an invasion, this is the, the only thing left, really. So sanctions become kind of a, a kind of a default. They used to be more limited than they are now because they historically were a fairly blunt instrument. You know, you, you embargoed a country or you just blocked massive amounts of trade. And in the process, you uh, you did a lot of, uh, sort of collateral damage that, that wasn't really related to your objective. William Reinch holds the Scholl Chair in International Business at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He also spent 15 years as the president of the National Foreign Trade Council and a member of the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Reinch also served as the Undersecretary of Commerce and Export Administration during the Clinton administration. And we're thrilled to have him join us today. Uh, the George W. Bush administration, I think, uh, really changed the thinking about that by embarking on, on a process of making sanctions much more surgical uh, and much more focused on particular individuals or particular institutions uh, and trying to sharpen the impact specifically on the people that had been identified as, as the bad guys in whatever scenario we were dealing with. And so that you were not, in the end, trying to destroy an entire economy. You were trying to focus on, on the particular people that were responsible for what you were against. That, in turn, sort of lowered the bar for imposing sanctions because they were much more targeted. And the result is you've seen a lot more of them. Bush used them extensively. Obama used them extensively. Trump used them extensively. And in the current situation, you, you've seen uh, really uh, an allied effort to multilateralize these things. So let's start with a really basic question. What is the difference between imposing sanctions and just imposing regular day tariffs? It's a difference of breadth, really. A tariff is a tax. And it's, it's one thing you can do that will make an import more expensive. And if you have a big enough tariff, it'll knock the import out of the market and you can hurt the the producer of that import, whoever it is, rather significantly. Sanctions uh, historically have been more focused on, on exports uh, than imports um, in the sense that it, it's a tool to deny the adversary uh, access, in our case, to U.S. technology or U.S. money uh, or U.S. credit. A lot of the sanctions in the since the George W. Bush administration have become financial. So really, rather than not buying stuff from them, we are forbidding people to sell them stuff, <clears throat> forbidding people to loan them money, forbidding people to engage in transactions with them. It's a different approach. So sanctions can broadly fit into two categories. One is against entire countries. This is where you prevent any business being done with that country. 
This is the type of sanctions you'll find in Cuba, Venezuela, and North Korea. The second is much more widespread, and it's against individuals and businesses. This is where you prevent people from doing business with these people, or even freeze and seize their assets. So the question I have for you is how can we target individual bank accounts? It's not like Putin would have property of Mr. Putin sitting in his American account. So how do we target that? Well, it takes a lot of work. Uh, and that's, in, in a sense, that's one of the downsides. If you're going to, you know, impose a trade embargo, that's sort of a stroke of the pen thing. If you're going to particularize these things, then you have to do a lot of research and you have to figure out who it is that you want to punish. And then you've got to figure out where their assets are and how to go after them. Uh, the main thing you have to do is, is approach the problem multilaterally for exactly the reason that you said, because people move assets, particularly financial assets, uh, people move them around with a few clicks, you know? So your assets were in, you know, in a bank in London, and now they're in a Swiss bank, and next week they're gonna be in a bank in the Cayman Islands, and you haven't gone anywhere. Uh, tracking that requires skill, persistence, and mostly multilateral cooperation. And you need cooperation from the Swiss. In this case, you need cooperation from the Caymans. Um, and you need to get, you know, basically every country in the world that has financial institutions with any credibility to participate in, uh, in what you're trying to do. That takes a long, usually that takes a long time. Uh, in the case of Russia, uh, it has not taken a long time because what the Russians did was so outrageous. You know, they invaded a country unprovoked. And the result was that, that you know, most countries in the Western economy, uh, well, not only in the West, countries in you know, Japan, Korea as well, have joined in uh, the sanctions because they're outraged at what the Russians have done. And what do you do when they don't cooperate, when you have areas like secrecy jurisdictions? The city of London, for instance, is pretty notorious for being a hub of Russian money laundering. And China also has a large number of incentives to keep friendly Kremlin accounts away from sunlight. Even if you were able to finally go through the six months of work to get them to show their paperwork on who owns what, by that point, the money is long gone and it's probably left to another secrecy jurisdiction. So how can you prevent always being four steps behind when it comes to imposing these kind of sanctions? Well, it's a first of all, it's a, on the last point, it's a constant cat and mouse game. You know, everything we do, there's something the other side can do. And when they do it, then we have a response. And so the game is, is endless. They move from one location to another. Uh, a popular tactic is if you're a company, you, you change your name. You reincorporate as something else. Um, I mean, all these things are traceable. So it, it just, you know, the West response is to, you know, uh, sanctions the new entity. Uh, then there will be a third entity and a fourth entity. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's endless. <laughs> Uh, if you want to go after non-participating third countries, call them that for the moment, you know, there's a variety of, of things you can do. Uh, one, the, uh, the U.S. is employed not in the financial area, but in the uh, uh, technology area, is essentially uh, secondary sanctions, and uh, which in the sense that they're imposed not directly on, in the current case, Russia, but on countries that are aiding Russia. So uh, in the case of uh, technology, for example, the US employs something that is called the, the foreign direct product rule. 
this gets into the weeds a bit, but I think it's it's worth the explanation. Uh, the U.S. controls on technology have always been extraterritorial. That is, we have always maintained the, the right to control stuff that's being exported from other countries if that stuff contains U.S. content. That's not a new thing. The Trump administration, though, expanded that concept to say that we will not only control a Chinese export because it contains U.S. content, we will control a Chinese export if it was made with U.S. equipment or if it was made uh, or designed with U.S. technology, U.S. software. Uh, the most obvious case of that is semiconductors because most semiconductors in the world, including most in China, are made on U.S. equipment. And so we asserted control over those exports, even though they are made in China by Chinese companies. Uh, so far, there does not seem to be any evidence that the Chinese are violating that rule. Um, if they did, uh, you know, the U.S. has recourse. What we could do uh, would be to cut those chip Chinese chip companies off uh, from additional American uh, semiconductor manufacturing equipment, and we could cut them off from the repair and maintenance of the equipment they've got, which in that, in that sector, in the semiconductor sector, that's a big deal because these, these uh, high-tech machines, particularly the high end, are very sensitive and prone to uh, breakdown. They need a lot of maintenance. In fact, most sales... Uh, come along with an arrangement to have people, if not physically located at the plant, uh, constantly on call to deal with problems. So breaking the, the repair and maintenance chain is a significant sanctions. So yeah, there's things we can do. Uh, the United States would have to decide to do that. Uh, and, and I think generally they would look for a violation. They would look for evidence that somebody is cheating before they took that step. So placing sanctions on a country you don't have much connection with is quite easy. The US stopping North Korean goods reaching US markets makes no difference to the average American. But what about bigger countries? If we were to sanction China, for instance, that would be harmful to China, but likely devastating to the average US consumer. Do you think the US would be willing to go after countries with sanctions if it meant causing large amounts of domestic pain for themselves? Well, it remains to be seen. I mean, uh, first, you're, you're right that when you're, when you're doing this to uh, a relatively small or extremely isolated country like North Korea, there's not a lot of political blowback here. There aren't very many people uh, who do business with, uh, with North Korea. You're right that if we were to launch this kind of program with respect to China, uh, it would be more complicated. First of all, the Chinese in my experience, uh, always react. They, they don't let these things go either unnoticed or un, unresponded to. So there would be a Chinese retaliation of some sort. It's usually care, carefully calibrated because they're very good at doing things that don't hurt them, but irritate us. So you have to build that into your planning. Um, one way to approach it is the way I suggested in, in our previous exchange, which is if you find a violation, if you find a Chinese company that is not respecting our, our sanctions and is shipping 
things to Russia that are prohibited. Um, if you target specifically and exclusively that company, um, you have a better chance of, of success. In other words, if you don't engage in a blanket sanction on the Chinese economy, um, you limit the blowback. You know, there are U.S. victims, the people that can't sell that company anything anymore. But the impact on the overall Chinese economy is is much more limited. Uh, and it's easier for you to do it because you've got to presumably have got evidence that the, co the company in question is cheating. And if you present that evidence, I mean, the Chinese will reject it because they don't acknowledge that we have the right to do anything that I'm talking about. Uh, but they'll they'll get it. They'll understand. And I think their response will be proportionately limited. So I want to bring up a bit of a case example that you likely know very well. The Reagan administration wanted to hurt the booming Soviet oil exports. And at the time, the Soviet Union were buying oil tech and specialty pipes from other countries around the world. So Reagan put sanctions on the USSR to try and hurt them and prevent them buying these specialty pipes. The immediate effects did hurt the Russian economy and production slowed for two years. But at that point, the Russians then developed their own domestic tech, making their own pipes and starting to sell them abroad as well, which added stiff competition to the US companies who at that point had been dominating the industry alone. It was short-term gain for long-term pain. Is there a worry that putting sanctions on a country just pushes the victim to further innovate and now that you have even less influence over them going forward? I'm familiar with that, that case. I'm so old, I was working on it then. And there's a funny story associated with it because what Reagan did was put companies in, in, in France in particular, but I think also in Germany and the UK in, in an impossible position because the French, for one, enacted what's known as a blocking statute, which ordered companies in France not to comply with uh, the American orders. So it put companies, including US subsidiaries that were operating in France in the impossible position, no matter what they were doing, they were violating somebody's rules. Um, if they didn't ship, they were violating French uh, law. And if they did ship, they were violating US law. Companies don't like to be in that position. Um, in the end, what happened, and I think this is not apocryphal, Prime Minister Thatcher called uh, called up Reagan and, and essentially told him, look, Ronnie, uh, you know, these are my companies. These are not your companies and you cannot tell them what to do. Um, and uh, Reagan backed off, uh, which is why this goes back to an earlier topic. That's why it's important to multilateralize these things, uh, because what you want to do is get everybody uh, who's a player in this game uh, having the same the same limitations and the same sanctions moving in the same direction. Because when you don't do that, you get exactly what happened in 1982 and 1983. Um, and yes, you're right. What, what it has the effect of doing uh, is it, it gives the target country, uh, in that case, Russia, or in the current case, Russia, uh, an incentive to develop its own, uh, its own workarounds, its own technology substitute for what it can't get. Now, that's not always feasible uh, in the case of, of, you know, an industrial economy like Russia, you know, it might be or it might not be. It depends on what you're talking about. Um, in the case of China, you already see that happening, frankly, and, and not even as a result of sanctions. You've got Xi Jinping giving speeches saying, you know, 
yeah, uh, during the Trump administration, you know, the Americans are unreliable. We need to go it alone. And if you look at the Chinese 13th and 14th five-year plans, if you look at their publication made in China 2025, uh, that's exactly what they aspire to do uh, without sanctions, namely create global champions in selected high-tech areas that uh, they want to use to capture global market share. It used to be much easier to be able to clamp down on other countries' use of the US dollar. But these days, oligarchs find it a lot easier to wash their cash, whether it be in the city of London or in overseas British territories. Is there a way of limiting oligarchs' access to US dollars? Or frankly, there are too many partners to go after on this one. Um, you know, if you're going to launder rubles, what are you going to launder them into? Well, dollars, euros, yen, maybe, you know, there's a long list of sort of subsidiary currencies. But um, if you've got, uh, you know, if you've got the European Central Bank if, and, and participants in, in the various uh, exchange programs, SWIFT being the most obvious one, all participating uh, and, and doing the same thing that the Americans are doing, uh, it makes it harder for them to move around. You know, can they put their money into RMB? Maybe. I mean, that would depend on the Chinese letting them. But, uh, you know, the, the yuan is not convertible. So you buy a lot of RMB, and then what are you going to do with it? You know, you can use it to pay your Chinese debts, but it's not like having piles of euros or piles of dollars or yen. So I think this time around, we've been more effective in... Uh, in not only in, in restricting their ability to move assets around, but also I think we seem to be fairly effective in, in identifying and freezing their assets, including their central bank's assets, those that are located outside of Russia. I mean, you know, there's always leakage on these things. There is no sanction that is airtight, in part because there are criminals out there who make lots of money figuring out ways to get around them. One of the major reasons the United States dollar is viewed as the world's reserve currency is the fact that oil is traded in US dollars. But if countries like Russia do not have access to US dollars, what happens then? If Russia starts selling the royal in rubles or pounds or euros, will that take away the strong backbone of the US dollar by stripping its ability of being the world's reserve currency? That's a really good question. And there's been a lot of... Um discussion about that here, partly because, you know, the general axiom in, in sanctions is, you know, they're most effective until you pull the trigger. Because once you pull the trigger, then you pull the trigger. And that's, that's sort of, that's sort of it. I mean, you have to keep in mind, you know, we're having this whole talk about sanctions, but, you know, from a from one perspective, they've all failed. If, if the point of the sanctions was to deter a Russian inv invasion, then they didn't work. Okay, the Russians invaded. And so here we are. And, and what we're doing now is trying to take steps that will com compel them to retreat uh, and withdraw, which is a little bit harder than trying to deter them from moving in in the first place. And, you know, once you've, as I said, once you pulled the trigger, there it is. And if they don't react, uh, you know, you have to find ways to keep escalating if you can, and that gets increasingly difficult. And it does, all, obviously, always prompt a counter-reaction from the other side. Is that how can I, you know, how can I get around this? And 
there's been a lot of thought given to, uh, you know, how do we get around uh, the dollar uh, domination of, of dollar's role as a world reserve currency. And I think there, I mean, I think the Chinese would like to like to uh, get around it anyway, not because of Russia, but because they would like to boost the yuan as, as, a, as a global reserve currency. You're going to see some erosion because uh, you've been, you know, globalization produces, you know, multiple multiple power centers, and you're going to see some of this. But, you know, the reality is, with respect to the, the ruble, I mean, nobody wants the ruble right now, and I don't think anybody's going to want the ruble for the foreseeable future. With respect to the RMB, uh, this is not a convertible currency. Uh, and until it is, um, uh, I don't see it as a replacement uh, for the dollar or, or for the euro. When you have a look at the places that the US has put sanctions on, there's a lot of debate as to how successful they've actually been. Venezuela is still under Maduro, Cuba never collapsed, and Iran, which was starting to move in the right direction under the JCPOA, is now rapidly swinging back towards the hard line since Trump has reintroduced sanctions. Is there a country the US can point to and hold up as an example of where sanctions are working really well? Well, they're all highly debatable. <clears throat> um, Cuba, I think, by almost everybody's account, is a failure. Uh, and it's partly, it's largely a failure because it's unilateral. Really, we are really the only country in the world that maintains those sanctions. And the Cubans have been able to get pretty much what they need uh, from elsewhere. I mean, uh, the, it's a classic example, I think, of a failed economy, but it's not a failed economy because of the sanctions. It's a failed economy because of Cuban policy. Um, the two examples that are usually held up as success stories, uh, both of which are disputed, are South Africa and Iran. Um, in the South African case, was, there were sanctions. They were multilateral sanctions. And yes, the, the apartheid government went away. And, uh, you know, uh, majority rule came in and there's you know, a black government uh, and has been for some time in power in South Africa. The West took credit for that. I think if you talk to South Africans about it, uh, I think a lot of them will tell you a different story. Uh, part of which is uh, that undersells the really hard work that we did inside the country uh, to transform things. And it belittles the effort of Nelson Mandela and, and, and the ANC over years uh, to build support for their movement and, and suggest that, uh, you know, the, the West just came in and, you know, in one stroke turned everything around when it's, in fact, it's a lot more complicated than that. I think other people will tell you with only a hint of sarcasm that the biggest difference the sanctions made uh, in South Africa was not the economic sanctions, but when they got kicked out of the World Rugby Championship um, and the Soccer World Cup. That, in a, in a country where sport is a big deal, made a big difference. Putting sanctions on a country is a complicated business, consistently made worse by frankly vague end goals. For instance, what was our goal by putting sanctions on North Korea? To force them to ditch the regime, to get rid of their nuclear weapons? Well, neither of those have worked. In fact, we've isolated them and created such a pariah state that both the US and China are now too scared to let it collapse because we can't be certain whose finger would be hovering over the DPRK's big red button if it wasn't Kim. But what about targeted sanctions? 
not ones implemented during the Cold War. Well, let's look at Iran, who we put sanctions on and the Bush administration took them off under the Obama administration and put them back on during the Trump administration. Have we achieved our end goal when it comes to Iran? Well, for that, let's turn to our second guest. Part two, directional dynamite. Well, they've, they've changed quite substantially. I think, you know, one of the, the interesting things, if you look back at how sanctions were used, you know, Cold War and, and before that, they were really blunt tools, more the type of what we would call country sanctions programs, you know, full embargoes. Um, and interestingly, one of the few tools that, uh, that the U.S. government had for modulating pressure uh, and targeting sanctions previously was was simply through licenses, which is one element of what Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control does. But they would be broad embargoes, and then you would license specific um, areas to, to be able to modulate the pressure. Catherine Bauer is the Blumenstein Katz Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and a former Treasury official who served as the department's financial attaché in Jerusalem and the Gulf. She's also the adjunct associate professor in the Security Studies Program at Georgetown University. And we're thrilled to have her join us today. And as terrorist financing came into that in around 9-11, this became really the, the first tool that was used to go after the financing of Al-Qaeda. Um, and these, this was an evolution then away from this broad country sanctions um, approach to really using what were called at the time smart sanctions or conduct-based sanctions that targeted certain types of behavior. So whether it was lists of terrorist financiers and terrorist organizations, um, or then into the proliferation financing realm, um, where you had UN-level sanctions that that started building out different types of, of uh, proliferation financing, specifically in the case of, of North Korea and Iran to begin with. Um, and the United States developed these tools really through executive orders um, that come from an authority called the International Economic Emergency Power Act, or IEPA, which gives the president broad authority to designate a national emergency and to regulate international commerce um, to protect uh, U.S. national security interests. And so these executive orders, 13224 for terrorist financing, 13882 for proliferation financing, and then later on, more targeted sanctions that would look at human rights abuses, anti-corruption, um, etc., became the, the tool to, to, to both target a specific kind of behavior and get away from some of the externalities and critiques of the broader country sanctions programs um, where you had a lot of, uh, you know, academic analysis and other kind of political liabilities of, of these sanctions, broad sanctions causing, uh, you know, much broader economic damage. Um, what you've had, I think, really over the last 20 years, though, if you look at specific countries that have been targeted, you know, like Iran, for example, um, but, but this is definitely the case in other places as well, is you have the overlap of these different targeted sanctions authorities um, over a fairly long period of time uh, where you build up to something that looks much more like the embargoes of previous decades or previous eras. Um, and this is a, a real challenge, I think, uh, for those who work in, in sanctions policy, 
is to really be aware of some of the implications of layering these sanctions on. And I think we have seen that um, in the challenges that the international community uh, have, has faced in trying to roll back sanctions um, and really deliver effective sanctions relief. Because uh, the, you know, the classical kind of um, objective of, of these financial tools is really to, to create a, a, a quid pro quo, to be coercive, um, to put out the message that this pressure is this economic pressure that's built through sanctions is being tied to a specific policy or behavior when you're using, especially when you're using these targeted sanctions. And if that behavior changes, that you can take that pressure off. Um, but as these sanctions have become more complex over the last 20 years, I think that that is, is, is one um, real challenge now that's, that's starting to be discussed more widely um, amongst, you know, those who, who are very focused on, on the development and implementation of sanctions. When you place sanctions on an entire country, you tend to hurt all of the individual people living there as well. Tightening the screws and starving North Koreans won't really force Kim out of power. It just allows him to tell North Koreans that it's outside forces that are causing their misery. But at the same time, targeting individual counts is also incredibly difficult, as the money is often moved around the globe and in multiple names. So how can you actually properly target sanctions? And what is the best method for targeting sanctions going forward? talked before about how you had back in the 80s and 90s this, these nascent efforts to set up a system where um, you know, law enforcement could use financial information to go after assets associated with narco-trafficking or other specific behaviors. What you really have from there is the, this evolution, starting with the Bank Secrecy Act, um, uh, of, of a requirements that are put on uh, financial institutions that have increased the transparency in the financial system. So you have requirements uh, related to uh, you know, know your customer and identification and customer due diligence and reporting of suspicious activities. And this is really what enables the implementation of sanctions um, because financial institutions have to be able to identify, uh, you know, they need to be able to link a name on, on the list to, to someone who holds an account with them. And, and they have to be able to do that to block those funds and know where that money is. And I think one of the events where we really saw how uh, how much the the this had how much greater transparency there was in the international financial system as a result of these you know decades of, of really reform and, and regulation in the sense was with the sanctions that were put on um, Libya and the Qaddafi regime um, following the uprising there during the the Arab Spring where, you know, in a period of a couple of days, 35 billion of Qaddafi's assets were frozen. And the ability of, you know, a lot of these were in complex investments that were um, held in, in, you know, in one bank and, uh, you know, custodianed in, a, in another jurisdiction. And really the ability of financial institutions to identify um, that the breadth of those assets and, and just the, the, the huge amount of those assets, I think, was, was a real indication of how far um, the evolution of transparency in the international financial system had become. And so when it comes to a targeting perspective and determining from you know, a government uh, perspective how where you're going to target your sanctions and how they're going to be most effective, it really, it really 
relies on the objective of the sanctions program. Which brings us to our conversation about Iran and the US objectives in the country. Obviously, the successes in Iran have been somewhat mixed in opinion. Whilst, yes, the sanctions have done major damage to the Iranian economy, politically, it may be a different story. When sanctions were lifted on Iran as part of the JCPOA, the quality in life in the country began to rise sharply. And we saw large investments into Iran from particularly French and German firms, taking advantage of the already sufficient factories that have been built under isolation. With the increasing westernization and investment in the country, we saw elections in Iran drifting toward the moderates again and again, both at federal and local levels. And many analysts were claiming that the hardliners' ideology would be dead in 20 years, with quality of life rising so quickly through Western integration. Under the Trump administration, though, the US slammed sanctions back onto Iran and forced all Western countries to abandon their businesses in the country. So Russia and China bought up the French and German factories for pennies on a dollar, making China incredibly influential in Iran rather than the EU. It also had the added effect of boosting political capital for the hardliners, who got to say, well, I told you so, about the West. Obviously, I would advocate for sanctions over war with Iran any day of the week. But in your opinion, has the US strategy in Iran with sanctions actually been a success? You know, I think that there are, you know, a number of cases where sanctions have bolstered the regime. Um, You know, when you have fewer resources, often those are coveted by the, the government and the elites. And repressive governments are more likely to, to crack down at any sign of, of dissent. So, you know, even in advance um, is kind of a preventive. Sanctions also sometimes prompted a rally around the flag effect, just like any foreign aggression, because, you know, they're a very serious weapon. They're often considered by policymakers as um, an option with fewer of the downsides than the alternatives, um, but they really you know, that needs to be considered what those other effects can be. And they need to be executed only when it's preferable on balance. And as part of a, of a broader strategy involving, you know, diplomacy and where appropriate military deterrence and even covert operations, you know, all the elements of national power. Um, And I think, you know, the, the other question is how, again, the regime, the target, uses its resources. And I think we've seen in the case of Iran that they're always going to prioritize things like, you know, funding their proxies, which they see as a very important part of their, their forward defense. Um, and they're going to cover the resources. And it's, it's the regime's response itself in a, in a great way. Um, I think that sanctions are not very effective at trying to influence the the people necessarily and that that shouldn't you know be the target um that it's it's trying to to make sharper put in sharper relief the decisions that a that a government is taking um and hold out incentives for changing behavior and a lifting of that pressure uh for some you know in the case of iran a negotiated outcome to put constraints on its nuclear program for example is there a way of using sanctions that goes after the elites without it hurting the average citizen? Well, I think this is in the age of targeted sanctions. Um, this has been the objective is to um, to target uh, whether it's industries, uh, you know, that the that government elites might benefit from the most, or the government elites themselves, you know, targeted sanctions on individuals, 
uh, trying to hit external networks. Um, in the case of Iran and in, in other places, what you see, though, is over time, these sanctions build up to become, uh, you know, very comprehensive in a way that mitigates, um, you know, the targeted nature of them. And, uh, you know, that's to build the pressure. Um, but that you, I think that, that you need to be careful about leaving sanctions as an end in themselves. And that's where you really see the damage. But uh, policymakers always need to consider the off-ramps. Um, and in designing the sanctions, look for ways that they can be effectively unwound. So both that incentive is there um, and that there can be relief you know, for the broader population when um, and if a negotiated outcome is reached. What about a nation like Cuba that's had the U.S. enforce sanctions for so long now that the population is quite vehemently anti-U.S.? Would you call what we've done in Cuba successful? So I think on the one hand, the the idea that, um, you know, turning a population away from the U.S. or the West, um, in the case of Iran, uh, is, is an indicator of the success or for failure of sanctions. I think makes a false uh, uh, kind of connection to what the objective is. Um, so if you know if the objective of sanctions, as, as some have speculated, and even some officials in the Trump administration came close to articulating, is to try to cause the people to rise up against the the government and overthrow it, and 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 shepherd in a government that that is more amenable to 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 the U.S. and more open to to Western engagement, that might be a consideration, but I don't think that that's actually in a, in a, a valid objective of sanctions. Since George W. Bush was in the White House, we have seen a fast increase in the amount of time sanctions are used against other countries. Do you think that trend is likely to continue? And do you think they're likely to lose their effectiveness as we continue to keep rolling them out? That's a very good question. Um, are sanctions going to become more prevalent? I think, you know, you have seen you're kind of when you look at some of these curves that you know the Treasury Department and others put out at how they've expanded the use of sanctions, you know, over the last two decades in particular, you think how can this continue to grow in this way? Um, when it comes to the overuse of sanctions, I tend to think that you know it's 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 not the numbers, but how effective they are when you're deploying them. So. You know, you can have a very small number of very poorly uh, constructed sanctions that do more damage than they do good. And you can have a very large number of very effective sanctions as long as you look at things like, you know, are there clearly articulated policy objectives? Um, is there, are they, uh, can you multilateralize these sanctions? Can you, can you work with allies to, to, um, to complement instead of frustrate the efforts? Um, you know, do sanctions make sense? Are you looking at a, an economy that has a, a, a surface area of attack that makes sense? Are they integrated? Is this going to be something that's going to change the, um, really make a change for them? Um, and are you looking at ways of how to unwind them? And I think as long as these elements are considered and, and there's serious thought put into how to construct sanctions that, you know, they can be continued at the at the level they've been being used this, you know, in recent years and even expand on that. When you take a look at the five nations the U.S. has imposed national sanctions upon, it's North Korea, Iran, Syria, Cuba, and Venezuela. All of them relatively small economies, 
often disconnected from being keystones of the global trade. But what happens when you sanction someone more involved in the global trade? Someone who powers an entire continent of your allies? This concept is fairly uncharted territory in this new globalized economy. So what will happen in the long term if these sanctions continue on Russia? What will the fallout be on the European continent? Will this be enough to actually topple Putin, or will this just convert Russia into a Chinese client state? Well, to answer that, we go to our third guest. Part 3. Squeezing the Bear So if you start with the 2014 sanctions, uh, those sanctions impacted specific firms and specific technologies in the energy sector. So there were a bunch of large Russian banks, energy firms, a couple other companies that were restricted from uh, raising capital abroad. And there were uh, certain types of energy technology, drilling equipment, for example, um, that was restricted to transfer into Russia. Uh, those sanctions over the past two months are vastly more restrictive, uh, impacting a whole slew of different technologies, cutting entire Russian banks out of the international financial system, targeting the Russian central bank. So they're really an order of magnitude tougher in terms of their impact. And uh, it's difficult to predict with precision what the effect will be over a one year or two year time frame. But the initial signs are that they're going to have a, a 10x the uh, level of effect of what the first round of sanctions had in, in 2014. So they're certainly having an impact. Um, the question, I think, for policymakers and for anyone trying to understand the situation is, over what time frame will that impact be felt and will it be enough of an impact to change the Kremlin's war plans in Ukraine? Chris Miller is an assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Tufts University, as well as co-director of the school's Russia and Eurasia program. He's also the author of Putinomics, Power and Money in a Resurgent Russia, as well as The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy. He previously served as the Associate Director for the Brady Johnson Program of Grand Strategy at Yale University and was also a lecturer at the New Economics School in Moscow. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. Well, they're not at North Korea levels yet, although they could keep moving in that direction. The, the big difference between what the U.S. has done with Russia and previous sanction programs imposed against North Korea or also Iran is that uh, in this case, Russia's primary source of export revenue, selling abroad oil and natural gas, is not yet targeted in a serious way. Uh, almost every other sector of the Russian economy has been meaningfully hit by the sanctions, but energy has been explicitly excluded from U.S. and EU sanctions. That's deliberate because the U.S. and EU are both heavily reliant on the types of commodities that Russia sells internationally, but it means that these sanctions are far from as strict as they could be. And I think one of the big debates we're going to see over the next couple of months is whether they ought to be tightened further, especially on Russian energy exports. Whilst the US has put wide-ranging sanctions onto Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, there were also numerous carve-outs for the energy sector, particularly oil and gas going into European markets. If the US were to put that back into the sanctions, do you think they're likely to alienate the European partners when the gas price goes sky high as Russia leaves the market? You know, that, that's what the Biden administration says in its explanation as to why it's not moving towards energy sanctions, but that's actually disingenuous and that's not really what's driving them. What's really driving them is fear that if they impose energy sanctions, Americans' energy costs will increase. Uh, and it's true that if the U.S. does impose sanctions on Russian energy exports, 
uh, global energy prices will go up. Uh, and so I think the Biden administration has been a little bit unfairly and uh, duplicitously uh, trying to shift blames on the Europeans when in reality, uh, Biden is just as worried about American gasoline prices ahead of uh, his November midterm elections. Um, the reality is that even though the U.S. today imports uh, no Russian oil and no Russian natural gas, it's actually now illegal to do so um, because oil prices are set in global markets, uh, U.S. consumers would feel the impact if Russian oil exports were restricted. When the U.S. during the Cold War put sanctions on Russia before, particularly on specialty oil and gas equipment, all it did was push the Soviets to create a domestic production for those products at home. Are these sanctions likely to push Russia away from integration with Western companies and toward attempting to build a more self-reliant economy? Well, they're certainly going to try, and, and this is a task for officials implementing sanctions, is to put sanctions on the industries where Russia has the most difficulty in building up domestic production. Aviation is a great example. Russia's had a civil aviation industry uh, for many decades. Uh, the past couple of decades, it's been teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, uh, depending on uh, the Russian government forcing domestic airlines to buy domestically produced planes. Um, and these sanctions, which will prohibit Russian civil aviation from importing a lot of the equipment that actually go into Russian produced planes, um, will cause immense problems for Russian civil aviation that I don't think they're going to be able to deal with for uh, years and probably decades is the right time frame to think about um, in, in terms of overcoming all of the imported components that they rely on. Other industries like semiconductors, um, you know, it's been uh, decades literally since Russia has seriously invested in semiconductor manufacturing. There are uh, three, arguably two countries in the world that have cutting edge semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, and so the thesis that Russia is going to go from zero to cutting edge in semiconductors uh, is, is not just implausible, it's fanciful. And so I think when you look across the set of industries that have been targeted, uh, what you'll find is that uh, overall, I think Western policymakers have done a good job in targeting industries where Russia is very heavily reliant on international supply chains. Um, and the problem for Russia is that it hasn't just angered one country, it's angered almost all of the world's technological powers from Japan to South Korea to Taiwan to the US to Europe to the UK. Uh, the only real exception is China. And so unless there are components that China produces, which there are in certain industries, but not in others, uh, Russia is going to struggle immensely uh, to upgrade its industries and even to keep factories open. And if you look right now just at Russian car production, for example, Russian car production is down by something like half. Uh, since uh, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, simply because Russian cars, like cars worldwide, rely on international supply chains and uh, parts and components that are produced in countries the world over. Uh, and of course, China is not a major producer of, um, of car parts. It's a second pl secondary player in the uh, global car parts market. So that's just another example of an industry where, yes, in theory, Russia can shift towards domestic production, but the reality is that it's going to be very tough, very expensive, and leave Russia, in many cases, with products. So Moscow still has friends, though, who have kept themselves out of this conflict. So as an example here, so right now Russia is banned from buying airplane parts that are crucial to repair their air fleet on the ground at the moment. But whilst Russia is banned from buying these, Kazakhstan is not. So if Kazakhstan was to buy these airplane parts and then sell them onto Russia, would the US discipline Kazakhstan and likely alienate them or allow this business to happen under the table? Well, U.S. and EU regulations do um, do provide for restrictions on that type of trading through uh, 
through neutral countries, if you will. Um, the challenge is enforcing it, which is obviously not easy, but uh, there, this is not a new problem. Uh, the US, Europe, other countries have had export controls in place against adversaries for many decades. Uh, and so there already are bureaucracies in place that are uh, tasked with tracking um, this type of, of technology transfer. Now, I think the challenge here is larger than the challenge that we've had to deal with in recent years, because for most of the past few decades, export control enforcement has been focused on relatively small economies, North Korea, Iran, etc. And Russia is a bigger economy, so it's a bigger enforcement challenge. But I don't think there's anything particularly unique about um, Russia that will um, will make this um, an impossible uh, challenge to deal with. And I think it's easy to think about um, it's easy to think about ways that you can get around export controls. But you know, if you're a car factory and you're making hundreds of cars a month and you need a reliable supply of components, how willing are you going to be to bet on illegally smuggling components for whatever you need? Um, it's likely the case that. Uh, if this component is worth smuggling in, it's an important component, which means that if you don't get it on time, your car is incomplete. It's sitting in your factory floor. You can't sell it on. So it's just not that viable from a business perspective in many cases to rely at large scale on smuggled components. And if you switch to the military um, segment, which is also another place where Russia has got a very long history of trying to smuggle in controlled products, here too, there's a lot of difficulty because yes, it's possible and it has been since the Cold War, we see uh, stories on a fairly regular basis of Russia trying to smuggle in uh, controlled components into Russia. It's possible to set up shell companies and, and, and do this type of transfer, but how confident are you that the components you're smuggling in are really components that you're smuggling or that they're not a CIA front operation designed to get you to smuggle in components that in fact have been tweaked by the CIA so that you're plugging in uh, modified computer chips into your missile systems? Well, you're probably not that confident. Uh, and so that's going to make you pretty nervous about doing that on a large scale as well. And so the Soviet Union tried to do this. They set up uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of front companies with uh, this goal exactly in mind. But I think the net effect was that it was really not that much of a lifesaver to the Soviet Union, precisely because of these problems. It's easy to get a single piece of technology from abroad, but to get it in large enough quantities with a surety of supply, with confidence that it hasn't been modified in some way of the type that you need to mass produce anything, whether it's a car or a weapon system, that's a very different matter entirely. And so I think we should have some confidence that these issues plus the capability of our uh, enforcement uh, bureaucracies should be able to put a fair amount of pressure on the Russian economy. We can put pressure on the Russian economy and Russian banks, but how do you go after oligarchs who have their money in you know, London banks or Isle of Man banks or Cayman Island banks or even Chinese banks who refuse to cooperate with your investigation? So I think if, you're, if your goal is to impact the Russian state and its ability to pursue its foreign and military policies, I think the question of individuals is probably not the most important thing to focus on. Um, it's unlikely that individual oligarchs are going to be meaningfully influencing foreign policy, and it's unlikely that whatever funds Putin has squirreled away abroad are going to shape the way he thinks about his war in Ukraine. Um, so I, I think at the highest level, we should prioritize our sanctions focus as how do you hit the Russian state? How do you hit the Russian economy? Uh, rather than how do you hit Russian individuals, whether they're distasteful or not, 
I think that's ultimately a second uh, order concern relative to um, the, the broader question of targeting uh, the state and the economy. But certainly there are, are plenty of ways to uh, hit uh, hit oligarchs, for example, or uh, people close to Putin. Uh, many of them have been sanctioned themselves. Many of their shell companies have been sanctioned. There's a cat and mouse game, as you allude to, uh, as they try to uh, move their assets to, um, to, to localities that aren't imposing sanctions. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the Russian elite has been under unprecedented financial pressure over the past two months, and I don't expect this to let up anytime soon, even if the sanctions aren't 100% effective, which I'm sure they're not at targeting oligarchs' financial interests. Uh, it's also the case that uh, the oligarchs have never felt this amount of pressure before. There are a lot of Russia analysts that are simply claiming these new sanctions are just speeding up a timeline and pushing Russia into becoming a Chinese client state, as they really have nowhere else to go. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that the war already to a substantial degree turned Russia into a client state of Beijing. Um, and I think we should be clear in our minds that even if there weren't tough sanctions imposed, I think some sort of sanctions were inevitable, but even if there weren't tough sanctions imposed, uh, the reality of the geopolitical confrontation is such that Russia's got no friends uh, and a whole lot of enemies around all of its borders except China. Um, so to a substantial degree, I think the war made that uh, the war already set that train in motion. Um, but I also think uh, that in the long run, there are a lot of Russians who are looking at the relationship in China uh, with some concern. Now, right now, Russians don't have the luxury to be able to think about the long run because they've got uh, a foreign policy crisis that's measured in weeks, not in years. And they're trying to figure out right now uh, what their approach is to the war that they've started and are now bungling in Ukraine. Uh, but when they have a chance to think it over the longer term, I think it's clear to almost everyone in Russia that their reliance on Beijing is something that's become too extensive, too um, too problematic over the long run. And I, I suspect that in the pendulum of Russia-China relations, which swings back and forth as different leaders enter the stage and leave the stage, we've reached one end of the pendulum swinging and we're uh, in the early stages of seeing the pendulum begin to swing back towards the Russian assessment of their reliance on China. Um, and I think that process might take years, if not uh, if not longer. Um, but I, I, I suspect that's where we are in terms of the historical perspective on the U.S., the, uh, the Russia-China relationship. What do you think the U.S. strategic goals are with these sanctions in Russia? What would be the box that could be ticked to call it mission accomplished? Well, it's a tricky question to answer because if you ask different policymakers, you get different answers. And that's true in the US, that's true in Europe as well. And that's something that's not unique to this sanctions program or sanctions in general. Many policies have many justifications and that's how you build coalitions to get them implemented. But I think if you look at what officials have said in aggregate and look at the logic of the way sanctions are implemented, the goal of these sanctions is to constrict the size of the Russian economy and therefore constrict the resources in terms of financial resources, in terms of technological resources that are available to the Russian state as it pursues its foreign policy and pursues its war against Ukraine. I think that's the primary goal of sanctions. And by that metric, I think when we, uh, when we look back on sanctions in several years time, I think we'll judge them successful. So sanctions are becoming the new weapon to be wielded. But the trouble with sanctions is that they tend to come with diminishing returns. Russia and China have both seen this coming for a long time now. 
and for years now have gone to the trouble of setting up an alternative payment system, alternative internet, and alternative financial networks. If Moscow and Beijing manage to get to a point where these systems are robust enough, we may get to a point where the US sanctions a country like Serbia and they simply shrug and move their payments over to the Chinese system, making sanctions effectively useless. The more you sanction, the more you reduce its teeth. So should the US be going down this path, and what happens if China or Russia manage to get a competing financial system off the ground, possibly even selling oil in a non-US controlled currency? Well, for that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. No Room in the Big Tent Sanctions started in the early 20th century at the time of World War I. And they had a significant impact prior to World War II. But as instruments of statescraft, they're, we're really at an inflection point. Uh, we're at really a geoeconomic turning point now in the case of U.S. and EU sanctions and other policy measures aimed at Russia. Uh, it's an inflection point uh, because we haven't seen this level of coordination of sanctions and export controls and other policy measures used against a major economy. Sanctions often are more effective against small, you know, states with small economies. Big economies, it's much harder because they're much more integrated into the global economic system. That's number one. Number two, sanctions as instruments of statecraft against autocrats are also hard to make effective because essentially dictatorial leaders or autocrats preserve their own equities, let their people suffer under the impact of sanctions and other economic measures. And if their people protest or complain, they jail them. We'll really see in the coming weeks and months and perhaps years what the impact will be. John Barrichini is a senior international defense researcher as well as the former director of the RAND Intelligence Policy Center and a member of the Party RAND Graduate School faculty. He served previously as the executive director of the Washington Office of the Monetary Institute of International Studies Center for Nonproliferation Studies. And before that, he was a senior associate at the Henry L. Stimson Center, where he focused on nonproliferation and arms control issues, as well as sanctions and their implementations. And we're thrilled to have him on the show today. China is taking note because here Russia has been a, you know, the 11th largest economy in the global system. And it's had some $630 billion of foreign currency reserves. But it all of a sudden has had all, about $400 billion of that frozen in, in countries around the globe. So it doesn't have access to a lot of it. China is a country with you know, more than $3 trillion in foreign currency reserves. So it's got a lot more at stake, a lot more that could be held hostage. So there may be... We'll have to watch and see, but China could rethink its position on the level of foreign currency reserves it holds and where it holds. I think China is not the only country watching, and it's not the only uh, intended audience. Clearly, in the current circumstances, Russia is the target for U.S. and EU sanctions and pause on the part of many other countries around the globe. But also, the use of sanctions as statecraft 
also signal to other countries, particularly those with smaller economies. These are instruments of statecraft that can be used. They may not be as effective as leaders want them to be in the short run, particularly with large economies that are run by autocrats. But if you're a smaller economy, and if you're a, uh, one with a somewhat pluralistic political system and economy, it can have an impact. Obviously, not even the Russian sanctions that have been implemented are full sanctions. There were large carve-outs for energy, as well as odd things like the Italians making sure there's a carve-out for handbags and luxury cars to be sold into Moscow. So if full sanctions almost seem to be off the table for Russia, would we ever do full sanctions against someone like China, or could we even look at that without huge domestic blowback? A good question. You point to an area where I think U.S. policy is not very agile in thinking about China. We have many disagreements with China, its political system, its activities in the South China Sea. In some ways, how it's operating its Belt and Road Initiative, where it's using its tremendous financial resources to loan companies, uh, loan countries uh, significant amounts of money for infrastructure projects. And then China provides a lot of the workforce and and engineering talent for it, but countries have trouble then paying back those loans. So there's a lot of things that we're concerned about China and how it operates in the international system. That said, the United States and China are very significant economic partners. And I think the pandemic and the Trump administration's general attitude towards China did not really help how we move ahead with a major power in the global international system that is also a major economy. It's the second largest economy now. And the bilateral trade between the United States and China is important for both sides, even if somewhat lopsided on the manufacturing side of exports to the United States, it still is an extremely important economic partner. So China can be a competitor and in some respects an adversary, but it's also a country in which we have to collaborate. So we have to think carefully about using sanctions with China. A lot of the news outlets around made a big deal about Russia being cut from SWIFT, the international payment system run by the US and used across the globe. It effectively allows people to pay for things over borders quite easily. When Iran was kicked from SWIFT, it was a huge deal and it really did cripple the Iranian economy overnight. But Russia has been seeing this coming and has road tested their own payment system, the SPFS, between themselves and Belarus. China too has been looking into this and building their own payment system calling it the CIPS. With kicking Russia off of SWIFT, will this simply push Moscow into using the CIPS, which will boost the utility and credibility of the payment system, particularly as third-party nations begin to watch on? Uh, it's a good point, uh, Michael, that by cutting them off, we've, we've, we've raised the prospect that they'll use these other payment transaction systems. That said, I think the the import of cutting them off from the SWIFT system has been overdrawn. I mean, really, it is a way for financial institutions to settle accounts. And still, a large number of accounts can be settled in other means other than the SWIFT system. The SWIFT system or the other ones, the Russian or Chinese version, and 
both Russian and Chinese companies, they do not use their own systems very much, although this may encourage them, as you suggest, to develop those more. Most of the companies in both Russia and China use the SWIFT system. I think there are other means, uh, there are other things to think about that the current sanctioned regimes on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine could encourage. One is, look at how the prospect of Europe reconfiguring where it gets its energy resources. This could lead to a dramatic global shift over time. It won't happen quickly, but over time, away from Russia, which could hurt the Russian hydrocarbon sector. If Russia does lose its access to US dollars and starts selling its oil in rubles or Chinese yuan, how will that impact the US economy? Will this signal to other countries that the US dollar is not the only currency oil can be traded in? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I mean, there has been a general uh, decline, although it's ebbed and flowed in using the dollar as the international means of exchange. Uh, and But it, uh, this is not new. At different times, the yen has been a more important, uh, although never overtaking the dollar, or at different times, the Swiss franc has been quite important. Uh, so that uh, the euro is uh, pretty important now, and the yen still remains a valued currency, and that you might have some increase in the use of other currencies. And the Chinese have been promoting the renminbi as an alternative. Uh, I think maybe inevitable. A number of countries have tried to, or Russia has tried to force a number of countries to use the ruble. For example, for weapons purchases, uh, and you know, a lot of countries just do not want to accumulate a lot of rubles, and particularly now, where the ruble value has declined rapidly and then been bolstered by a lot of Russian state intervention, countries would would rather trade in palm oil rather than accumulate things like rubles. So I think we're quite a ways away from. Uh, having the dollar decline so significantly that it would be replaced or significantly sidelined. And uh, I do think that that will vary depending upon what the international system, the stability of the international system. In times of crisis, often there's a flight to both gold and the dollar. And I think that is certainly what's happening now. Whether they whether that would change uh, is something we'll, we'll have to watch carefully. So right now we have a lot of the EU on board with these sanctions, mostly due to the fact we did huge energy carve-outs for those guys. But what do we do about countries who are not as cooperative? Guys like Kazakhstan and Georgia, who, whilst not involved in the war, are also not condemning Russia at the same levels. Particularly over the last three weeks, we've seen massive amounts of Russian bank accounts opening up in Kazakh banks. Should we turn a blind eye to this money or go after the Central Asian countries who are harboring Russian money but risk alienating the entire region who still has somewhat cold feet towards the United States? Yeah, so I think we really need to be uh, creative about the trade-offs that we have. And I, I would point to India and Turkey as two countries that... Um, the United States has, uh, has either applied sanctions to, in the case of Turkey and its uh, purchase of the S-400 air defense system, 
Uh, and India, which also has purchased the Russian S-400 uh, air defense system. In both instances, it's a violation of a congressional law, the Countering Americans Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. And in the one case in Turkey, we have applied those sanctions. And in the case of India, United States has not. In the case of Turkey, they've been applied because Turkey's a NATO member that was asked not to pursue this air defense technology because Turkey was part of the F-35 program. So it seemed inconsistent for an ally to all of a sudden purchase the air defense system that would be so effective against the, the aircraft that Turkey was building as, its, as part of its membership in NATO. In contrast, India purchasing the S-400 system is a less desirable candidate for being sanctioned, according to the CATSA sanctions, because the United States has a foreign policy objective in the Indo-Pacific region where we are wanting to forge a constructive alliance with the Indians, Australians, and Japanese to counter China's aggressive maneuvers in the Indo-Pacific region. So with Turkey, we, the sanctions were applied, but there still is a dialogue with Turkey because Turkey is proving uh, uh, to be cooperative on certain things, particularly in regards to Russia and Ukraine. And sometimes it seems to be working constructively with Syria, but then it's sometimes intentions with Greece, another NATO member. India, in contrast, is an important member of the Quad arrangement, but it also has been buying lots of Russian oil at uh, low cost and did not take a stand in the UN voting to um, disapprove of Russia's aggressive invasion of Ukraine. And it's been buying Russian weapons. But India is in a tough spot because it has a legacy arsenal composed of Soviet and Russian weapons. And you don't just change out the weaponry from your supplier overnight, even if India wanted to diversify its weaponry more, the interoperability of legacy systems with new systems just makes it very hard. Do you think we're likely to see a lot of Russian assets be given to third parties in order to skirt sanctions? You know, something like Nord Stream 2 being given to a Kazakh gas company like Kazgas. So the Russians can effectively use it, but the EU gets the ability to say they're not working with the Russians anymore. Do you think that kind of option is on the table here? Third-party sanctions are a tool in the sanctions toolkit. And the Countering American Adversaries Through Sanctions Act essentially works that way. That is, we want to discourage other countries from buying Russian weapons uh, based on Russia's seizure of Crimea and invasion to eastern Ukraine in 2014. We have applied those sanctions to Turkey for its purchase of the S-400. We've engaged, the United States is engaged in diplomatic discussions with many countries around the globe trying to discourage them from purchasing Russian weapons. Uh, and in a number of cases, the, the, the potential threat of sanctions without actually the application of, of them have led countries to seek other alternatives. And the alternatives needn't be, for example, in weaponry, needn't be U.S. weapons. There are other weapons suppliers that countries can purchase to be kind of independent of 
Russia or the United States in the current situation, such as France or South Korea or Germany or, or Italy or even India and Brazil make uh, certain weapons. So applying the sanctions isn't always what proves their benefit. Even the threat of applying them can result in policy change. But it can't result in policy change in all cases. And again, India is one of these cases where they have a legacy arsenal that make third-party sanctions difficult to apply. So I think you really have to think about third-party sanctions in a case-by-case basis, the particular circumstances of a country, and what other diplomatic equities a country may have in that bilateral relationship. Do you think these sanctions are going to become more useful or less useful as they go along? Are they going to have the same impact long-term as they do now? Well, uh, I think it proves the point that sanctions can be more effective as well as other uh, punitive economic measures if there's unity behind them. Sanctions uh, have different roles of either deterring, penalizing in the short term, or denying resources, for example, in the Russia case, trying to minimize the amount of uh, revenue Russia gets from arms sales or oil sales that it might use for the war against Ukraine. So there are different roles for sanctions, and I think those different roles play out at different points in time. They are not a silver bullet instrument of statecraft. They are just another instrument of statecraft that states need to think about how to articulate them. And the articulation needs to be not only in the application or the threat thereof, but also in the in the relief of the sanctions that might reward a state for responsible behavior. So sanctions have their place, but can they be used as the wide sledgehammer that many seem to think it is? Since sanctions have been put in place, many would argue that the US position in Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, and Iran has gotten worse. And all it's done is hurt the population and rallied a repressed people around the flag. But doing nothing would also have been chaos, to just shrug when Assad uses chemical weapons or North Korea launches missiles over Japan. To do that would have sent horrible signals that the international community will not intervene if you do horrifying things. But many, including myself, would say that both of these options may be preferable to a full-scale invasion, costing thousands of US lives and tens of thousands of local ones. Without some sort of middle ground between war and peace, conflict around the world becomes a light switch, only to be turned on or off. So for now, we continue to play the cards we're dealt and try to use economics to curb bad actors, nervously watching as Russia and China build up their own payment of financial systems. Right now, the US relies on being the center of finance, and for the medium term, their place in that is pretty secure, but certainly no longer guaranteed. From now going forward, every country the US sanctions will likely be met with open arms and free membership to the Chinese system of payment, repeating the Iran car industry problem. When other countries come in and build industries, the US places sanctions on them, and they're forced to abandon them and run to the arms of China who buys them for pennies on the dollar. But sanctions are a long-term game, and we're still yet to see their full-term impact. But for now, as the US starts to throw rowdy countries into the ocean to see if they sink or swim, 
are discovering that a number of these nations are pretty good swimmers. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week for a more deeper economics-focused episode. But I can confirm the next fortnight we'll be back to the usual bullets and bombs. To keep up to date with all those upcoming pieces, though, and everything else we're up to, you can find all our links on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Red Line Pond. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeHilliardOz. Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to friend of the show, James Chamley, who is the latest Patreon to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners who donate a small amount of money each month to help keep this show going. And we cannot thank them enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we'd greatly appreciate it. But for now, James, this episode on sanctions is thanks to you. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is a personal favorite of mine, Klemtopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World by friend of the show, Tom Burgess, for a fantastic insight into the world of money laundering. The second is Power and Money in a Resurgent Russia by this week's guest, Chris Miller, for a look into how far the Kremlin's money reaches. And the third is The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as the Tool of Modern War by Nicholas Mulder for a look at their recent rise in the use of sanctions. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, William Reinch, Kay Bauer, Chris Miller, and John Parakini. All of you were absolutely fantastic this week, and we look forward to having you on the program in the future. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCaw, the producer, Owen Swift, Perry Grace, Daniela Zavella, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Ross Crabtree, our media specialist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, as well as Jonah Gunn, our production assistant. This team is consistently putting out the best of the best work, and we really are appreciative of all their time. But for now, The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.